Welcome to another episode of Fresh from the Hill, inside stories of noteworthy Cornelians. Uh, my name is BJ Ciasova, class of 2007, and with me today is Arthur Wong, founder and CEO of MiniWiz, a company that exists to show the world the unlimited potential of trash by taking the recycled materials to the highest form of product engineering. Welcome, Arthur. Hello, everyone. Hi, fellow Cornelians. Love it. So uh, Arthur is joining us today uh, from Taiwan. Uh, I'm in New York City. So through the power of the internet, we're able to connect around the world with us, which is pretty cool to have this conversation um, with you. Um, Arthur, I'd love to start off. How would you describe MiniWiz to someone you've never met before? No, we basically want to take trash, everything that you throw away, into the resources of the future. Uh, or, I w yeah, basically want to take all your trash and be able to build everything you've ever needed. I love it. I think one of the cool things I've seen from the videos is how you really do adopt this idea of the circular economy and things that we throw away. There is potential in some of that stuff and creating new objects as well too. Um, could you talk a little bit about how, how did MiniWiz come about? How did this um, idea, this um, company come about? How did it get started and that, that journey for you? For me, I started in Rome uh, when I was in the Cornell Rome program. Sorry, I'm advertising for Cornell uh, programs. <laughs> Love uh, it. But Cornell Rome program, I, I feel like I was really dumb until I went to Rome uh, because that's when the culmination, the Cornell architecture has a Rome program. So we get to stay there for half a year or a year. Uh, the fact that when you go to Rome, you see all these Japanese tourists back then, this Japanese tourist back then. Okay. <laughs> um, they were taking photos of these buildings and we have this interesting history mixed with archaeology classes with this professor called Yang Gedeng. And then we get to visit archaeological site. Then you figure out where, then all of a sudden you see the section of a wall. You get, it looks like marble, it looks like brick, but actually the real inside, the structure that holds up the building are all made from trash. Yeah. That's interesting because then you realize people are very efficient. You know, they're faking it with marble. They're using marble as a, a wallpaper. But in reality, they're using the most efficient way of constructing these timeless architecture. And these beauties, uh, after 2,000 years, are still being studied, copied, and recorded everywhere in the world, right? Even our Capitol yeah. Hill in Washington, D.C., it's all modeling after the Roman form, you see? Uh, so... The, even the structures, the architecture, the proportion, but then the, even the construction technique of using cement and everything else you can find, whatever you can find. And in Italy, there's this thing called the spolia, means even the Renaissance building, uh, the medieval building, and all the way to the modern building, all those buildings are recycling itself. They're taking the old structures and reusing it into a new form. And that becomes a precious object, even more precious than before. Um, you see, that's when I, when I have this idea of upcycling. And then the next phase is that when I was in Cornell, during that time, it's a, um, the period of famous architect, what we call the star architect phase, yeah? Okay. Uh, in the uh, late 90s. So all the star architects are like idle. But to tell you the truth, every time they come to Cornell, every time I listen to their lectures, I just want to puke. Yeah? <laughs> uh, uh, the reason why I want to puke is that when they keep using the word green architecture back then, yeah. it's called green architecture. And then I was like, how is this green? You're using steel, bent glass, um, bent steel, and then you're using so much heavy carbon footprint resources yeah. to build something that is completely out of context. And then 
and we have all these theoretical BS about why this is important to the world of architecture, okay? And then my thesis is basically countering against that logic. It's like, can we build something with the lightest footprint? Can we build something that's within the contractor's grab? Like, so for example, the can you just, you're in the Ithaca Gorge, can you just mm -hmm. pick up whatever that you found right next to it and build something that is the most least carbon footprint uh, simplest construction technique, but it still maintains beauty. It still maintains performance as an architecture, as a piece of um, art, uh, building, as a function, and also as a piece of art, right? So yeah, that was kind of what I mean by what is the nature of engineering, architecture, and design. So that's kind of where I got started this whole journey. And of course, then the obvious thing is start your own company to prove a point uh, that this works. So how is it? I think that's the, you know, I'm wearing this shirt that says action over words. We talked about that right before we started recording. So I yeah. think you've really taken this idea of you didn't just sit in the lecture hall and be like, oh, these people are here. They're not living this truth. You actually made a company and brought that to life as well, too. Um, bringing this uh, company to life, you know, what was that like? You know, it seems like you're one of the first um, uh, firms to kind of do this. What was that journey like bringing it to where it is today? Uh, the journey started in New York City. Uh, we, we, we just say, back then, this iPod yeah, is popular. So we say, okay, everybody put their most precious idea or precious song. You asked me what type of song I was listening to uh, <laughs> in the beginning. So you're putting your precious song into this little like data bank. And how do you link the sustainable lifestyle, the new generation of material, the new generation of energy Okay, with the least carbon footprint to power that. That's how we started. So how can we affect people directly in people's hands that affect people's life? Okay, and basically we invented a new product, the portable wind and solar charger. Okay, uh, using recycled paper, if you think about it. Okay, that was back in the days and recycle ABS. And by the way, doing the whole process was so difficult because in the market, just think about it you know using recycled material is going to be the lowest carbon footprint. Everybody has been talking about it since the 1980s, by the way, okay? And then you couldn't find the material in the market. You couldn't actually just buy the recycled material and turn that into your product. So that's a revelation. So I started in New York, um, and then we ended really badly, but we still did make some money. Um, the reason is because most of our manufacturing also shifted to Asia during that time. Okay, so a lot of the manufacturing, the material I'm looking for, the technology of manufacturing that I'm looking for is not where I can uh, access. Yep. So then that's when I went to China for this huge trip to try to find suppliers and go to Taiwan, go to Singapore, go to Hong Kong, Korea, to try to find suppliers of materials and technology to be able to fulfill what I want to do. So during this process, we kind of built a repertoire of the problem that we face yeah. as a, uh, as actually a global like economy. Like now, everything is divided. Nobody has a um, kind of expert uh, say in anything anymore. Uh, everything is interconnected, and you know, recycled material is a complete fake topic because when back in the days, if you want to ask for recycled material, you end up in the junkyard. That's all you get. Huh. And you get up, end up in a junkyard with American and European waste. You, do you see the funny part? This is already 20 years ago. 
Yeah. 15 years ago, 20 years ago, you go to a junkyard, you ask for recycled material, you end up seeing packaging from Marks and Spencer's. Okay. You end up seeing packagings from US Coca-Cola bottles, you know, like mini-made, you know, it's like, this is quite disgusting, actually, if you think about it, you know, all that waste is traveling across the world to China. Only recently, many of that report is revealed. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so that's mean when we are, when, since we are kids, uh, we've been educated to recycle, to separate at the end, it's all fake. What are you doing? It's just straight dump to Asia. So this is when all the thing interconnects. Yeah. So I how do you take, yeah, I think you're really bringing out the idea, too, of the unseen effects of our consumer society, right? So, it's yeah. yes, it's easy, but where does it all go? It's sight unseen offshore in another place as well, too. And I think mm-hmm. what I love about the, the work that you're doing is you're bringing light to where these things go. And how do we change it from just, all right, this is just more trash, but how do we add more value to these things that we're creating and rethink about it in a new way and really create this circular economy in that space as well, too? Um, the circular economy, I think, is something, um, a phrase that many of our listeners might not be familiar with. Um, could you share a little bit about what that um, looks like and what does it mean to create a circular economy um, with the products that you're creating and the, the economy you're trying to create? The summary of what a circular economy is, is just zero waste. Okay? Zero waste. Just imagine anything you produce, you have zero waste. Every bread you eat, you don't shit it out. Uh, you actually come back, become your new nutrients. The shit actually, be- sorry, okay, I don't know if you can, but I mean, the crap. <laughs> I was going to say, I appreciate your candor, Arthur. <laughs> but, okay, no, it's not swearing, you know, it is, it is crap that we, we just look at it as waste, but then you actually using that as a nutrient for you to power, doesn't matter, organism, or also as an economy, right? So you want to yep. take what's, uh, so there's no waste anymore, right? If, if that's a perpetual cycle, then we reduce our footprint by default. So that's the, the general concept. But I hate the word circular economy because huh. this is a very old concept. Like I was mentioning in Rome 2000 years ago, in China 2000 years ago, in Japan, it doesn't matter where, any old culture uh, has to be able to become a scalable empire has to have circular economy in mind, okay? So there's, it's not a magic story uh, yeah. that I'm bringing out. It's historically, it's a fact. It's always been there with us. You ask your grand-grandparents or your grandparents, this is how they lived before World War II, you know? So glass is always reused, you know, metal is reused, and except metal kills you because it actually oxidizes and create poison, and so you cannot use it. But then, then, then we plan. came out with this. <laughs> then we came out with this beautiful magic material called plastic. Then solve all that problem. Right now, what people don't understand is we cannot get away from that because we yeah. don't have a material to replace that at the moment. Everybody is showering through plastic pipe. Every water you drink is through plastic. By the way. There's no resection. If we are still drinking through copper pipe, we'll be all be poisoned. Lead pipe, we'll be all be dead, right? So we, we just saw that in Detroit, yeah? Yeah. So, so then we have to deal with this. And good thing is the thermoplastic when it's first invented, if you see the history of thermoplastic, it was designed to be the lightest, most reusable material ever. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to reuse your plastic bag million times without even breaking at that minimal weight. That was the beauty of hydrocarbon products. 
Then we turn that into single use. That's when all hell break loose. Yeah. So, yeah. And the worst is that, I mean, just like a lot of people forgot about fashion product. You talk about all the architecture product, it's all plastic, right? Every floor, every piping, plastic everywhere, all your glasses, so all architecture is already plastic out. Okay, got it. But a lot of people, when they didn't notice this, plastic is actually touching you in the most intimate way. Yeah. All your underwears are plastic, okay? All your underwears, all your socks, uh, anytime, you know, socks has elastomers, that's plastic. Uh, if you say I use 100% cotton, it still doesn't work because it will have elastomer in to make it fit onto your feet. Yeah. So almost every, your underwear, for example, if almost everything has plastic in it, right? Okay, so you are intimately related to plastic and we are benefiting from the lower germ level we are ever used to. That's why the population increased so much. Food yep. can be package better medicines package and if you go to hospital that's plastic central you see yep you go to hospital nothing is everything is plastic it literally yeah single use, but then how do we you know remove away from that because again i think it's exactly what you mentioned right we've created this great new material that has all these benefits but then what is the other side of that what does it do after it's had that use what does that life look like um one exactly. of the things you know i i mentioned to you earlier you know i used to work in science museums and worked in um, science education and one of the big things i've seen is that yes we as individuals can do something but i think a lot of the power um in in changing the way our economies are structured does come from structural things as well too um in your work as well too what are some areas that you think people can advocate for in terms of policy change or things that we can change in a structural level rather than just our individual levels as well yeah i think the structural level is very simple like the government all they have to do is ban single-use plastic all they have to do is that you know all <laughs> you know like is it, except i just have to i mean we all know that because the big company can switch that quickly, right? Yeah. And then they are all politically supported by uh, supporting the current structure, right? So, yep. okay, I'm not trying to reveal my political stance, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, if you are in that structure, yeah, it's impossible for you to get out of it because yeah. everyone wants to delay the actions. But in reality, it's very simple. Like, you know, you just like coronavirus right now, all you have to do is just cancel something, right? Cancel the travel. Yeah. Oh, everybody stop. So, oh, cancel the five-day work week to four days work week. Wow, the pollution stops, you see? Okay, yeah. so um, the plastic, I think, is exactly in the same way. All you have to do is stop the source from producing virgin, you know? And yeah. of course, there's going to be a lot of problems that arise to that, but then right away, that is the solution because then we have to treasure the beautiful hydrocarbon molecule we created and we have to reuse them they're designed to be reused forever yeah yeah i think that's one thing i appreciate about the things that you do as well too you don't make plastic a villain you help understand that you know the the beauties of the product and how we can keep reusing it uh, more and more as well too so i think that it's all about that framing and how we look at these these objects and these resources in a whole new light and i think that's what i appreciate about what you've done so far <laughs> Yeah, but oh, so I think how do you engage the community? This is engaging the government, yeah. How do yep. you engage the community? It's like I think to change consumer behavior from the grassroots side, I think the key is to you have to make trash into a currency. Yeah. Okay. So the throwing away, 
is actually a lot of cost, yeah? Okay, but if imagine if you can make the trash, whatever material you don't want, into a currency, right? Into a, yep. you know, like once it become a currency, nobody throw money away, right? Period. <laughs> yeah, so if we can do that, changes consumer behavior also instantly. Totally agree. I think that I, I love that idea too of like, if you can make it valuable, who's going to throw money away, right? You, you yes. encourage people to do something about it. Um, yeah. You know, you talk about public engagement. I'd love to dive into that a little bit. So you're a National Geographic Emerging Explorer among many other accolades. Um, I think one of the most interesting things to me about climate change is that there's not much disagreement on the science anymore. The challenge really is winning over hearts and minds. And I think you've done a great job of that in a lot of your public outreach. Um, you know, like, as I mentioned, you're an emerging explorer, you filmed something as well with Jackie Chan. Um, so you're really doing a lot of public outreach out there. Um, can you tell me, what have you learned about the public from these talks and engagements that you've done? And what advice would you give to others um, working on this journey as well? Okay. Um, so first of all, you, you definitely, again, making public aware of the currency uh, has a value of trash. So for example, the first big building we built are actually um, uh, work with the government to make trash valuable. That's as simple as that. So we have a trash drive, okay, with the Taipei city government. Uh, we uh, have a target of collecting 1.5 million uh, bottle-like things because consumers actually don't know what material that is, yeah? So these are bottle-like things, empty bottle, clean. That's all we need. And then we ask sponsors to give in, like, let's say, donate, uh, or uh, put their name on it, olive oil, okay? Yep. And so consumers and the government are doing this drive, and then they are in the good action as rewarded with a bottle of olive oil. We collected 1.5 million bottles. Guess how long, how fast did we finish that? It was scheduled for three months. We finished uh -huh. literally in nine days. Wow. Okay. <laughs> okay. So you got to know, like, you know, if you actually say, just tell people, Look, you get a one liter of olive oil for 20 bottles. They will go pick up the trash around the city, you know? You yeah. see, that's a type of public engagement. And then the second thing, a second thing you have to show people is transparencies. You want to prove to people what you're doing is not fake. So what yeah. we did is we have Nat National Geographic follow us on the whole journey of the transformation, all within 60 kilometers of Taipei. Do you see what I mean? So yeah. I use the local factory there within 60 kilometers to transform all that uh, waste collected into an architecture gray material that is still create an architecture spectacle. So, so I think that is a one way of doing engagement. Recently, uh, you, what you saw in Tibet with Jackie Chan, uh, that is yep. another set of public engagement. As many of us know in Himalayas, 4,500 meters at the base camp, around the base camp, it's all polluted yeah. by all these people who are supposed to be super environmental, uh, whatever, yeah? But then yep. it's really, the tourism is killing the water basins. You got to imagine, yeah. one-third of the world's population is literally depending on this fresh water source, yep. yeah? So that has three major rivers, right? Yellow, Yangtze, and Meigong. That includes yep. China and Southeast Asia all together, all the way to North Korea, you know? Yeah. So you, you're looking at like 
literally East Asia is based on this fresh water. And you, if you go up there, we got a lecture from the Buddhist sect, uh, Buddhist monk, and they're giving me photos of how the cows and the river basins are completely polluted with all this, uh, like, you know, kinder eggs, plastic bottles, you know, you, you, you get really sick, you know? So, and then we like, well, then I talked to Jackie, uh, I said, um, do you think we should go up there? And then he's like, yes, let's do it. I'll help to sponsor part of a journey and let's do it. And then, so we went up there, we collected the material on the basins and then we turned that into schools, uh, into material for schools, to building yeah. schools. And at the same time, we engaged the kids uh, from yeah. the kids to help us picking up, telling them Kinder Egg is not good. You cannot tell people Kinder Egg is not good. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's I love chocolate I... with plastic toy. You, know, it, you cannot tell them this is not good. Okay. Um, <laughs> and, but if that process is fun and that process with Jackie's help, uh, and the whole transformation process is using solar without creating secondary pollutions. It was such a moving experience at the end because uh, the kids actually are asking big brother. That's why they call me in Chinese. Mm -hmm. It's like, um, doesn't matter if it's girl or guy. Okay. And then they were saying, how can I, how can we be just like you guys trying yeah. to do this? And then what do I have to study now? You see? And then that is just, yeah, like, and by the way, we can't breathe. We are all like, everyone's like half dying from mountain sickness. Uh, <laughs> and then, oh, yeah, but then these kids are like, literally like, just following us around, just can't, just won't stop. They just want to know everything. They want to know what the process, what type of books to read, how to, you know, like that is the another part um, of our engagement. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. I mean, it's a very holistic approach too, right? So you're not just going in, doing one thing and leaving. You know, not only are you reducing the total impact of the work that you're doing, but you're also engaging and bringing in the community, right? You're not just teleporting in and just saying, here's what we are. We have all the answers. It's you're engaging with the local children, you know, making the next generation of folks um, able to continue this on um, and be inspired by the work that you're doing as well too. And so that's what I love about the holistic view. Yeah. And we're also donating the machine for them. Yeah. Uh, so they can use the trash to convert that into tourist gadgets, you know, yep. so they can sell the material back to the tourists. <laughs> exactly. But again, I mean, it's, it's continuing that life cycle. So it's not just, oh, we're just here for these, you know, weeks that we're shooting and then we're gone. You're leaving things behind to help empower them to continue this work um, and help them grow from where they are as well, too. So I think that's a really amazing thing um, that we, we've done from that space. Um, the one other thing I want to touch on um, in this space as well, too, is uh, in a few other interviews I've done, we talked about sustainability and how it really is intersectional in terms of, um, you know, equity and often uh, with climate change, the communities that are impacted the most are those that are often have um, the least amount of power and voice in the space. Um, question for you, in the work that you've done, how can we start to change that balance and, you know, give more voice to those folks and communities that are impacted the most by um, climate change? No, actually, impacted most by the climate change. You have to first of all look at the triangle, the how this triangle is being influenced. For example, I was just talking about Kinder Eggs or Evian bottles of water. Okay, mm -hmm. look, this is coming from um, very sophisticated, developed nation products. Okay, you gotta understand these are products created uh, and marketed by. Uh, very sophisticated nations, yeah? Okay, yeah. but it's 
it's trickled down all the way to the most impoverished. Okay, so you gotta know, like we are, you know, it doesn't matter if it's like, like recently, like I went to, let's say, um, recently we went to, let's say, Tibet or in Southeast Asia, uh, in some of a more impoverished community. You ask them whether they think uh, bottled water is better or their fresh mountain spring at four thousand five hundred meters better. They pick <laughs> bottled water. <laughs> you know, this is. This is uh, this is the dilemma we are facing. So no matter how you are empowering them at a, a theoretical level or on the engagement level, the the desire for these goods are coming from the very top. It's these yeah. developed nations. So they all want to be driving a BMW SUV. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? They all I want do. to have this image of this Evian bottle in the restaurant to show off to the guests how sophisticated they can be you see so okay so i think that's why we are focusing on additional to the more working with impoverished community i don't think the revolution should start from the grassroots up okay i actually think we need to change the dialogue from the very top and that image as trickle down then they will be emulating the image because it's, it takes forever to change culture, right? It's like you cannot yeah. change the paradigm of Western sophistication versus, you know, these more impoverished community. Like, so they're, in, they're aspiring to be like that. They're not going to say green is better because, but the problem is how come New York is not doing it? <laughs> yeah. Right? I agree with you too, right? It's hard for other, it's, why are we convincing others when we aren't willing to make that step ourselves? It starts from within. New York is the one of well. the most polluted crap, like, you know, there is out there, right? We don't even recycle, yeah? Arthur, don't remind me, sometimes summertime in New York, I just realize and like, oh, this is what garbage is. <laughs> yes, yes. So I definitely, I definitely feel you in that space as well too, but yeah, there's a lot of, uh, I agree with you, right? It's like how I, I, when you mentioned, you know, talking about like um, people seeing, you know, the Western, like wanting to emulate that, you know, my, a lot of my family in the Philippines, when I go back and visit them, it's that same dual thing of, I'd love to go back and live there more. And they talk about moving to the States and it's this whole idea of the grass is always green on the other side. So how do we yes. understand what is the best of both places and how do we elevate those things together? I think that's a, that's a place where we all want to be. <laughs> yes. Um, Arthur, so I'd be remiss if we talk on the Cornell podcast and didn't talk a lot more about your Cornell experience, though I could probably talk uh, with you about sustainable development and design for, for days. Um, early on, you mentioned, you know, being, uh, you know, in the Cornell in Rome program and being inspired by seeing the architecture in Rome and your experiences through that. Um, could you talk a little bit more about how did you end up at Cornell to begin with um, and your journey um, through, through Ithaca and the Big Red? I mean, Cornell architecture program and the engineering program has something that we are always very, as, like as a kid, uh, I only applied to one school. So Cornell is my choice. Uh, partly is because of the engineering program with the NASA program, right? Yep. And then partly is also with the uh, uh, architecture. Yeah. So I was very undecided between those two, by the way. Uh, and I was <laughs> accepted early, actually. Um, and then I... Then the Cornell uh, professor, uh, Cornell life began, but I think most importantly for me, once we enter Cornell, is uh, it's Ithaca and its professors because yeah. they are literally my, I would say, is like almost like my second family for me. And then the the, you know, it's like 
it's really like it's like a I think this is where I kind of opened my eyes. So I'm forever, and then of course, after that, I went to Harvard and start teaching in many places. Um, yeah, I, I don't think anyone can offer that. And mainly it's because Ithaca, because it's locked you into this weird little place and <laughs> with this beauty that's just so ex- astonishing, with this winter that's just so, just crazy um <laughs> like you know six inches of snow but i don't know if climate change changed that in the last 20 years but you know i get six inches of snow like um, every morning and then it's just like you're locked there you just can't go anywhere <laughs> i would say i would agree that i grew up in uh the middle of the the u.s in wisconsin and so i remember my first memory when i was doing a tour of cornell and it was the middle of february and the tour guides were telling us oh this is the coldest winter we've had in, you know, months or years. My parents and I were just in sweaters laughing. We're like, if this is cold, I think he's going to be fine if he ends up getting accepted and coming here. (laughs) I love everyone's different perceptions of cold in Ithaca. It it does crack me up. (laughs) Um, You mentioned a little bit, you know, having these professors be a big influence on you. Um, What were some of the other, what would you say are like defining Cornell moments you that really um you know impacted your career and what you choose to do today uh i think first of all it's the beauty of ithaca like i said uh because you know like you, you there's plenty of beautiful gorges uh like around ithaca and the fact that you did you see the like uh bb lake which is a power plant right and it was powering all these industries even we are actually at Rand hall which used to be a um, uh, arms yep. manufacturing site, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. But what I'm just saying, just like you know, this little microcosm pretty much is beautiful, beautiful. Yet it has like all the power you need. You know, it's high, from hydrologies to the building construction material. So, I mean, imagine you're in some place that's really ugly, okay, and it's telling you like you know you should be sustainable. I think it's really difficult. You know, it's going to be quite <laughs> difficult. Yeah, so. I think this is one of the things that really, for a city boy like me, was finally are somewhat inspired by nature. You know, you were always in the city. All of a sudden, now you're inspired by nature and see how this duality between man and woman, uh, man and nature, or, you know, men, women, and nature can actually be, you know, kind of this in this beauty, you know, just sitting there in front of you. So, and on top of that, the education process um is very intense i think for at least for the engineering and architecture side it's crazy and people don't care about safety back in the days yeah uh which i love and now i think it's completely illegal Uh, (laughs) and yeah and then yeah it's just yeah it's it's really like you you feel free when you're in ithaca in a way Uh, and that's when your mind just explore anywhere and then when you went to Rome everything click you know so yeah. for me that's that's why I kind of always have this affinity for Ithaca and Cornell. Arthur you mentioned we don't have that this uh there's a little bit more safety what do you mean by that I want to poke into that a little bit more. <laughs> oh you should see like I mean I used I was the only kid that's like freshman year I think I'm the only one who has a car you don't know how many friends i took them to hospital because oh they cut 
they cut their fingers or, you know, because architects, we have to work in the shop, right? We burn yeah. ourselves in the welding machine, uh, in the, the, you know, like someone caught on fire. This happened. I mean, this is a, but I mean, now I don't think you can do that. And imagine you can do that all night long without supervision, right? Uh, saws, any type of power equipment. I'm uh, hoping the students that are listening are being a little bit more safe uh, and that are remembering these things from more nostalgic time from Arthur. <laughs> no, but I mean, for example, I was in the lab in uh, our engineering school and then, mm -hmm. wow, we were doing carbon fiber and then like my prof I was my professor's TA and then like he's asking me to glue things together. I, I remember I like for a couple days and I almost died because there's no ventilation, you know? It's like, oh you know, so I don't know if it's still there, but I mean, and we had to put those things in the oven and we had to test the material strength. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it is like back in the days, really. Like, but I think that's also part of a process, like the go getter um, idea. And for example, I think one of your questions uh, is what's your most memorable moment for me? Yep. Is the Dragon Day, yeah. So what did you, what would you, what's so memorable for you about Dragon Day? <laughs> oh, by the way, I'm the one who built the dragon or helped to build the dragon with my team, right? In, Excellent. In, okay. And we had to fight against the engineer. Yeah. And yep. that was a, that was a joke, but it was a lot of fun. Uh, the, you know, like it was a, a lot of fun, but a lot of pain. I remember that was the first time I didn't sleep for five days um, oh in a row. <laughs> And that was also, I got arrested twice for, <laughs> in Ithaca, I have to do 60 hour of community service, uh, painting kids' faces, uh, picking up trash on Route 13, and picking up, uh, drawing faces at tr uh, Triangle Mall, I think. Triangle Mall. Pyramid Mall. Close. Pyramid Same Mall. shape. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then, but I mean, that's when um, yeah, I learned how to weld welding um uh and literally like and we created a giant dragon structures but it fell apart during the parade and all the team 60 of us have to hold the whole steel structure up with our bare arm so everyone was crying at the end almost wanted oh, to kill geez. me <laughs> yeah and the violence back then for Dragon Day was impeccable. Uh, it was lacrosse stick with frozen oranges. <laughs> and that is terrifying. I would say the latest dragon, uh, one of the latest ones I saw was made out of bamboo uh, in the sense to make it lighter and easier to burn and more sustainable. I'm hearing you use steel and I'm like, oh, that does sound super heavy and crazy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Steel, yes, exactly. And it, we have to be back then. I say, why steel? I, I asked the exact same questions, and then like our professors and the uh, uh, sites, uh, the shop supervisors, like, uh oh, you don't understand. Dragon Day is dangerous. You have to build like a tank because people are throwing at you with projectiles at eighty kilometers an hour. I say, what is that even legal? You know, but. But during the Dragon Day, when you are actually inside the Dragon, it is like that. People are throwing rocks, throwing projectiles at you, um, and it was really dangerous. So you actually put yourself in the steel cage. 
I know Dragon Day has tamed down a lot because of a lot of the violence, uh, the fights and the violence that came with that. Uh, it's becoming a lot more civilized, I would say. But imagine when I was in the 90s, um, those are still the day of the Dragon Day. So that's mean Cornell kept that tradition up for almost 100 years of this violence. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, I mean, I think it goes back to our whole idea, too, of like, how do you incorporate the good elements of the Dragon Day that you know, and like incorporating the health and safety of students today, right? So how do we make sure that there are still cool things happening, and kind of evolve a lot of these campus traditions to fit in with modern times? Um, I think that's always an interesting talk for me, too. I, I saw my very first um, Dragon Day was this huge, the dragon was essentially paint and cardboard. And seeing it in flames, I saw photos on the art squad. It was this massive, massive bonfire, and the whole campus was together. Um, you know, and seeing the latest dragon, um, it's a little bit of a different feel, right? And I, again, I think for someone, I think that's the challenge of being an alum is that people often hold on to the nostalgia rather than seeing that, like, the students today don't know a different lens. They are creating their own memories today as well, too. Um, one of the new dragons I saw, they weren't allowed to burn because of it was excessively dry on campus um, if something happened. So instead of burning the dragon, they covered the dragon in like paint and all this other stuff as just to symbolize like the explosion and all that. And like, here's a way of making do with the circumstances that you have and bringing your own twist to it. And I thought that was a real cool way for these students to take advantage of, you know, the things that their own disposal. So. Awesome stuff. Um, Arthur, we're approaching the end of our time here. One of the last questions I want to ask you, you did mention that you had taught at Cornell before. Um, if you could create any Cornell class of your own design, um, what would that be and why would you create that class? No, the first thing is I think all engineers and all architects need to have a business understanding. Huh. They don't. Uh, so all the Tenko staff, the Tenko engineers, Tenko architects needs to have a business class as part of a basic curriculum. And uh, material science is a must uh, because I think uh, the reason, this is one of my biggest complaints, uh, I think for any of the uh, engineering side, because most of engineers don't touch material anymore. They are assuming material is finished. It's yeah. already at its highest level, you see? Okay, and the very few are touching the basic material science. Okay, I think that's one part. The second part is if you want to get anything done, you need to talk with a little bit of the business language. And yeah. I was fortunate enough that I get to take some ag school business classes from marketing to some business 101, micro and macroeconomics. But those are actually not uh, part of our curriculum. So I wish. We have a little bit more like a studio that has a business um, logic to it. We cannot just present performance and design all the time. See what I mean? Yeah, I love it. I, I think that might be, I agree with you too. I'm, I have to check in with the folks on campus. I think those classes exist now, but I don't know if they're required. Um, and I think that's the thing that might have changed over time as well too. So glad you can share your expertise on that um, and all the work that you've done. Um, again, this has been Arthur Wong, founder and CEO of MiniWiz, a company that exists to show the world the unlimited potential of trash by taking that recycled material to the highest form of product engineering. Um, Arthur, this has been a great conversation with you. Look forward to hearing um, what you do next and watching what you do next. Um, to all our listeners, thank you for listening to Fresh from the Hill. Be sure to like, rate, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find out more about young alumni programs and how to get involved at alumni.cornell.edu backslash young alumni and by following our Facebook page, Cornell Young Alumni Programs. 
Music for Fresh from the Hill was written, produced, and recorded by Kia Albertson Rogers, class of 2013. You can contact him at koa3 at cornell.edu. If you have questions or ideas about the podcast, you can email Amanda, our amazing producer, at amanda.massa, M-A-S-S-A, at cornell.edu. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you again on another episode of Fresh from the Hill. Bye.